Uh, find your place there. Oh, echo effects. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, um, we pray that you just minister to our hearts and speak to us during this time. We give it over to you. There's no way we can just uh, read this book and these words and have it captivate our hearts in such a way to where it transforms our lives apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you take these truths, you build them into our hearts and show us how to live in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for coming and paying a price that we could never pay. And we thank you then for empowering us for a life that would never be possible outside of you. So we just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So my, uh, I had a plan this morning, but it, it didn't work out. But my plan was I was going to pick up like, I don't know, 50 or 60 like little badges and have them all like by the door. And then when you came in, you know, everybody gets a little badge. And that was going to kind of play into our message today. Um, there are two issues with it. One, I didn't get to the store and get them, so that was a problem. So that didn't work. Uh, number two is uh, some people get weird when they get a badge. <laughs> they get like power hungry weird. Like Julie would have you all arrested. <laughs> like people get weird with stuff. So, um, and, and the reason why um, I was going to do the badge thing is because our time this morning will be a little bit different. Um, we're going to kind of play a little bit of a private investigator kind of role this morning. And we're also going to actually get to the, you know, to the truth of, of what's going on in the situation there. But uh, we're going to be a little bit of like private investigators this morning. So you have to put your make-believe badges on and your little hats on. And what we're going to do, see some people already did, they're like, tink, tink. Right? We get into the role, because what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at, this passage is all about the empty tomb. I mean, this is, this is the cornerstone of the entire Christian faith, is that the tomb is empty. And the title of the message um, I have up here, still empty, and in your bulletin I got a question mark and I got an exclamation point. Because even though the tomb is empty... To a lot of people, that's like, and what is that significant for? To another group of people, they're really excited about that. And they want to sing about it and raise their hands about it and tell all kinds of people about it. So part of what we'll do this morning is kind of take a look at this idea of the empty tomb. So one, I hope it encourages our own faith. And then number two, we live in a society, in a place where most people could pretty much care less about an empty tomb a couple thousand years ago. It's just really not a big issue for them. So when, not if, so when God places us in position around those that could care less about an empty tomb, or maybe puts us in a position with people who have certain ideas or beliefs about an empty tomb, hopefully we have something of value maybe to contribute that might maybe challenge a little bit what they think or what they've held on to. And maybe we can go past just challenging to a conversation that hopefully leads to convicting. 
Because don't you, all of you, I would think, want to be involved in conversations where, you know, we're just not there trying to prove people wrong and challenge them. We want to lead them into an interaction somehow with God where it convicts their heart. Those are powerful conversations. Those are powerful relationships. So let's take a look and see what's going on here. And we're going to address a bunch of different things. So everybody has their badges on and their hats on, right? Because that's what private investigators wear, right? I have no idea. Okay, so let's take a look. So it says, early on the first day of the week. So what day of the week? First day, right? That would be uh, Sunday, right? Sunday. And let me also say as a side note, this passage is also in the Bible in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so I'll give you those references in case you're writing it down you want to read it again later because they have unique perspectives on this as well. So Matthew 28 Verses 1 through 8. Same stories there. So Matthew 28, verses 1 through 8. Mark 16, 1 through 8. So we got both of them are 1 through 8, right? And then you have Luke 24, 1 through 12. So you got Matthew 28, 1 through 8. Mark 16, 1 through 8. Luke 24, 1 through 12. And it's interesting to hear each of their perspectives. For whatever reason, God chose it fit to use these four guys and preserve um, their personal recordings and account of what happened. And it's interesting to see how each of them saw the situation. So early on the first day of the week. So many times the question is, why do you guys get together on Sundays? The Sabbath is on Saturdays. Uh, Hebrew culture, Jewish culture always get together uh, on the Sabbath, on Saturdays. And they're right. Good point. Um, but the other side of it is, is that typically um, church has adopted meeting on Sundays because of this event right here. And we'll find out like later in the book of Acts and later in the early church, they always got together on the first day of the week on Sunday. And so that's why we get together on Sunday. And hopefully we all know that no matter what day you get together on it, it it's not like God is more pleased if you got together on the true Jewish day of Sabbath on Saturday or if you did on a Sunday. Hopefully we realized last week when we read Romans 14 that anything, any day, whatever we do, as long as it's done unto the Lord and done in faith, it's pleasing to God. So we meet together on Sunday. And we happen to do it at 11.30 a.m., pretty late in the day. So it says, while it was still dark, so super early. How many super early people do we have in here, just out of curiosity? Who's just up early, ready to rock? Not me. I'm just saying, put your hand up. I don't. <laughs> That's a lot. Wow. I'm not so up super early, ready to rock. I'm up super late, ready to rock. I'm the opposite. Um, so while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, so... We saw her before last week, and we saw Mary, mother of Jesus, last week. And we saw some other women last week. Went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she's up early. She runs to the tomb and sees that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And then in verse 2, so she came running to Simon Peter... And the other disciple, that's John. That's who's writing this, right? He's always talking like in third person, doesn't like use 
himself. He, he kind of talks in the third person there. So she came running to Simon Peter and John here. And he always refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. I don't know if like, God was cool with that or not, but that's always what he did. God must have been okay because he kept it in the Bible. So he's like the other one Jesus loved. Brown noser, right? It's unbelievable. So Simon Peter, the one Jesus loved, and said, so she's talking here, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So you probably picture her just running, like frantic, freaking out. Here she is, kind of a mess, really showing up. And you can tell from the gospel, she's just a mess. She's crying, she's a wreck, she's just, she doesn't understand what's going on. She probably can't even, it's hard for her to even understand that She's walking to her Savior's tomb, who, how could he die? It just doesn't make any sense. And she's going there like to, to finish off kind of the burial ceremony that the, that the Jewish culture had. And then she shows up, and then the stone is gone, and then he's gone, and she's like, ha, ah, freaking out. So then she's telling Simon Peter, and then John, so verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, track race, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Like, John is something else, right? So he's the brown noser and he's the faster runner. Points for you, John. Good job. He's probably younger than Peter. Peter's probably like this old guy, you know. So verse 5, he, John, bent over he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Verse 6, Then Simon Peter, that's our guy, who was behind him, second place, arrived and went into the tomb. So young John got there first, but he was too afraid to go in. But you got the old second placer, not afraid of nothing. Steps right in there. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And the way like it's described is that he basically saw like a cocoon of this linen there. So it still like had the form of a body that was there, but there was no body there. And so he's like, oh, you know, that caught his attention, as I think would catch most of ours. Verse 8, finally the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. So once he saw Peter do it, then John got in there. It says, he saw and believed. And verse 9, they still, catch it, right? Not strong faith here. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. It's very interesting throughout this whole process. They had no idea that he was supposed to rise from the dead. Last week we read about Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea. They came to preserve his body. That's how the cloths got on Jesus. And it probably smelled amazing because they brought 100 pounds of just aloes and lotion and myrrh there. And then the next morning, the women show up there and uh, Peter... And John show up there, and, and everybody's just expecting to go to the tomb and just finish off kind of the burial ritual. Nobody's showing up thinking, oh yeah, he said he's going to rise from the dead, so 
he shouldn't be there. Or like right there, like, oh, is he really going to be there? Nobody had that faith. In fact, it's very interesting. When you read the other account, specifically Matthew 28, the people who really knew he wasn't supposed to be in there was the people that sentenced him to death. So they said, hey, listen, remember? Hey, remember, he was saying he's going to rise from the dead in three days. So, hey, listen, we're going to put a guard there. We're going to watch it. And make sure that doesn't happen, because that happens, then we're really going to think this is going to be tough. So they're the only ones that actually remembered and recognized what Jesus said. His own followers didn't even get it. Go disciples. <laughs> so then verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So then they took off, probably to tell everybody else. Verse 11. But Mary Magdalene, that's who the Mary is there, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. Crazy, right? It's amazing. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. So something about these two angels that are there in the tomb with her, there's nothing recorded of like her falling on the ground, her being scared, her like captivated by this moment of the angels. Her response is just like broken. It's like they, they took him. Like I don't. She's not even like caught up in the angel moment. We have entire like sects of Christianity that are just locked into angels all the time. She knows where the important stuff is at. It's with Jesus. She says, they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. There's a party in the tomb, and she's the only one there. Crazy angels and Jesus there. And she's just so focused on her Savior's just lost, because she doesn't recognize him. Watch, verse 15. Or 14, it says she didn't realize it was Jesus. Then verse 15, Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Just totally clueless, right? Got two angels, Jesus on the scene, talking to her. Didn't even know. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, and the only way Jesus probably can, from the way that he just knows her, he's like, Mary. And she turned, or, turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Right? It's all the same now. It's my God, your God. My dad, your dad. It's all the same. You've got the same access to the same Father. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And it's crazy that when she gets back, they actually don't even believe her. Like, stop. Stop talking this nonsense. And then all the women are with her. Like, no, we really saw him. They're like, no, no. 
It's crazy. And so you read the other accounts, like the reaction, what happens. So it's pretty interesting, right, as far as what develops and what takes place. Total lack of faith on the part of the apostles, disciples, just pretty much non-existent. There's a little bit there, in fact, in the fact that they believed them and they woke up really to get there, but there's not much. And absolutely, the people who sentenced them to death had a strong sense of faith. They run there, Peter and John. John obviously gets there first. Yeah, him. Right? And then Peter is there as well. Peter just barges right through. He's like, wow, you know, checking it out. And then John's like, mm, it's safe now. You know, and then kind of goes in and checks it out. They take off. But Mary, like, was still not happy with what was going on. So she, like, stayed a while. And wow, did she have an experience for staying a while. Message there, don't ever leave church early. <laughs> that's a crappy message. I took, you know, that's not at all the message, you know. But some people try and say stuff like that. Like that that's not what that's saying. Hope that didn't mess anybody up. It's not. It's total manipulation. Don't buy into that. So, a couple of things from the story that I just want us to just kind of study and investigate a little bit. Not everybody is sold on the fact that there's an empty tomb. That means Jesus rose. Not everybody's sold on that, okay? Um, so let's look at a couple of things about this. And um, let me just back up one small thought before that, okay? Mary Magdalene, she's kind of a key player in all this, right? And it's interesting, like, how her name has been associated with, um, you know, the Catholic Church and some different ideas. So I just want to briefly touch on that because, I mean, listen, this is like the culture and society we live in. We should probably know what people say and where that comes from have something of value and of worth to contribute to the conversation. So, um, so Mary Magdalene, somehow, along the way, which I'll tell you about in a minute, uh, there's not a lot about her in the Bible. Um, Luke 8, she came to Jesus. She was, in Luke 8, she was delivered from seven demons. Delivered from seven demons. Wow, is right. Holy cow. Um, she, so her legacy, I don't want to say legacy, but what has been attached to her, she had become like a prostitute and a harlot, and then even so far to say that she is like somehow uh, the wife of Jesus Christ. And then the stories just get even crazier from there. A um, couple of thoughts on that. <clears throat> so one is this whole relationship, romantic relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, one, if, you, if, if anybody ever reads the Bible, it's really hard to find that. Really difficult to figure out how a romantic relationship got involved there and how that could have happened. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but a lot of people like to signify and highlight about kind of her unique experience here. Because let's face it, that's crazy. And that's pretty amazing. Um, and so it must have been, you know, because it was, he had a romantic relationship, and that was like his girl, and, 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 and no, not so much, not so much. But let me just throw it out there that, and we'll get to the issue of the harlot in a minute. So, if you were, had your life completely controlled and dominated to the point where you could never make your own decision, where you could never do the actions you wanted to do, think the way you wanted to think, you were completely paralyzed. For a lot of people, that's sadly the way they live on a daily basis. She knew a lot about that. 
she was completely controlled and dominated in every sense by seven demons. For a lot of people say maybe 20 to 30 years of her life. Now, if someone like that, let's say were to step into our church and we gave them the CC Nagi prayer time and blasted them. And then let's say those seven demons came out of that person. I would venture to believe that that man or woman would all of a sudden be extremely close and tight-knit to that fellowship of believers. Don't you think? That person has changed my life forever. That church group, in this case we're talking about Jesus, that person has changed my life forever. They've set me free. I'm never in bondage. I have my life back. I can now function like a normal person. I don't see her leaving that. I mean, that's why I can't leave Jesus. I ain't married to him. So, I think this idea of her being close to Jesus is, is more because she's been in contact with the man that set her free and changed her life forever. And we as humanity get weird and put sexuality always has to like come in and screw things up somewhere. It can be used for such good. Like there's such, a, there's such a rich well of just blessing, holiness, and goodness. And I think the enemy knows that. And at every turn, he just comes with distortion and perversion on that front. It's ridiculous. It's so annoying. And I think that has absolutely happened in this case. So that's like a little bit of a thought on their idea of being romantically involved. This other idea of her being a harlot. What happens is that there's a pope um, in like the 500s, like 506, 507, BC or so, Pope Gregory. And what he did is he gave a homily, right, they would call it, they gave a homily about, there was a woman, so Mary Magdalene was in Luke chapter 8, there was a woman in Luke chapter 7, who was a sinful adulteress, who actually walked Jesus, Jesus' feet got washed twice. And in this time, in Luke 7, there's a woman who is a sinful adulteress, washed his feet. And then in Luke 8, you have Mary Magdalene. So what Pope Gregory did is he tied those two together and made the assumption that that was the same woman. And he also went as far as to say those seven demons were there because of the seven cardinal sins she had violated where lust was one of them. So now you attach lust, you attach adulteress, you touch sinful. Harlot isn't too far away. And so that's like where that idea kind of came from. And the interesting thing is that that idea really only caught on in the Western church. It it hasn't really caught on in the Eastern part of the church. In fact, like the Eastern part of the church has actually deemed her an apostle, believe it or not. She's considered an apostle in a total other light, which is very interesting. So that's just a little bit of history, a little bit of idea of like kind of where she sits and plays into this. And, you know, you stick to the Bible and you stay to the Bible. It's like, man, you can just see. She showed up in Luke 8. She was a woman that was just controlled. She was dominated. set her free. Never left his side. She offered her whole life, basically, in thanksgiving and gratitude. And she happened to have a ridiculous moment. It's not uncommon for somebody's life to be radically changed and set free and give their lives to Jesus 
and then he just shows up and just blows them away at times. In fact, that's kind of like the Christian life. It's kind of strange when that doesn't happen, actually. So that's Mary Magdalene. Um, so let's get into this idea of the tomb, resurrection. Is this legit? Is it not? So here's a bunch of thoughts. Uh, number one, this would be strange, I think, if it was the only time it ever happened in the Bible. That'd be weird a little bit, right? I mean, God can do what he wants to do. That's fine. But if there's no other records of somebody rising from the dead, I'd be like, well, that's kind of strange. He, he rose from the dead, and the one time he did it, nobody was there to see it. That'd be weird, right? So, um, a couple of references. I think I have them back there. Um, 1 Kings 17. That's one passage, Old Testament. Uh, the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned him, and he lived. So Elijah raised a boy from the dead right there. Right? Old Testament stuff. Um, 2 Kings, we have a passage on that one, Eric. 13, this one's wild. Once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. So they just threw this guy in Elisha's tomb. He was already dead. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. What? (laughs) What? They threw a guy in there. He hid his tomb and then came alive. Crazy, crazy. And then there's a couple other examples um, in 2 Kings. Um, there's obviously the one with Lazarus earlier on in the book of John that we read about. So this whole idea of somebody coming to life is not really anything new. It's like a part of God's nature. It, it plays a part. He, he's done this thing before. It's, it's not that foreign. As far as Bible perspective, Bible time, and there's a lot of claims today that people have done that as well, and let me just say on that, we'd just be good to research that really well, right? There's a lot of false claims as well because um, we also get, like, miracle crazy, too, and we just start chasing stuff. It gets weird. It just gets weird. So being raised from the dead is not a new thing. So the question is, what happened to the body? Now, the Christian believer in faith, in faith, believes that the resurrection happened. Right? We believe that in faith. None of us were there. Like, I wasn't there. You weren't there. We weren't in the tomb. We didn't actually see him in the linen cloth and watch him rise up out, see the linen stay, and then, like, what does he do? Does he go through the rock? Does he go, like, through the... I, I don't know. None of us saw it. Right? We don't know. So we believe that in faith. Some people choose not to believe that at all. And so here's like some reasoning, right? So we, this is like why we're going to investigate just a little bit. Not too deep, not too crazy, but just enough. So we're equipped with a little bit of something. So here are some of the, the more popular ideas of why the body is not there and why the tomb is empty. Number one is dogs ate the body. That's, that's like a pretty popular one, believe it or not. Um, where the tomb was, it was like near a garden, and maybe there was like some access to that cave in the tomb, maybe from a back end of some, of some kind. Where Jesus was crucified, there's lots of dead bodies. And it, wouldn't, it, it was not at all uncharacteristic for dogs to be there kind of feasting on the dead flesh and stuff, funky and gross, I know. but So that's one that's been thrown out there. Right? Kind of weird, but... If that happened, it'd be weird to explain the whole linen situation, right? Be weird. And there was like no trails or pieces of him, you know. 
Um, so here's another one. What happened to the body? Dogs ate the body? Eh, you know, people throw that stuff out there. Um, another thing they throw out there is a reburial. Uh, people throw out this idea that there's a reburial, and there's, um, what's the name of it? There's a document called the Tola Death Jesu. And so basically there's like this idea that there was another gardener who got the idea that somebody might be involved in stealing Jesus' body. So he went and he took the body and he buried it somebody else so nobody could like ruin it. So that's another idea that's thrown out there um, that has issues as well. Um, but let me just kind of run through some of them. Um, the Matthew 28 reason for why the body isn't there is the big one. If, we'll just go there really quickly. It's a, it's a short thing. And if you don't get there in time, that's okay. I'll just read it. Um, Yeah, so Matthew 28. Uh, let's go. Verse 11. So while the men were on their way, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Uh, when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, here to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did, excuse me, as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So that's another possible reason why the tomb is empty. Somehow they knew about this. They got in there. They, they got it and then took off. A lot of, just there's a lot of issues with that. I think, number one, if you read even one, if you read all of the Gospels, you can see nobody, none of the disciples had a clue as to what was going on. They weren't even aware that he was going to be doing this whole raise from the dead thing, even though he said it a lot of times. So they weren't even really hip to that fact. Um, another problem is that there's this ginormous rock in front of the tomb. So how do you move that? I mean, that was like the whole, the women, there was four women, and their topic of discussion as, discussion, uh, as they were headed to the tomb that early morning, how are we going to move the stone? How are we going to move the stone? So the thing had to be pretty big if four women, you know, can't, you know, that. Um, so how would they do that? And then like, how would they move it? Where would they move it to? Another issue is, I'm trying to think if it's all of them or not, but just about all of them lost their lives for the sake of this gospel. It'd be strange to think that they all lost their lives knowing that they full well had the body and hid it somewhere else. That'd be weird, right? If anything, they probably should have made some sort of like cultic thing where you give a lot of money so it could perpetuate that all the time. That's like something us as humanity would do, right? So it'd be weird that they would just take it and then give their lives. That'd be strange. Um, so those are some of the, honestly, those are some of the biggest reasons. The dogs ate the body. There's another reburial according to this uh, other document. Um, maybe they stole it. Oh, one more reason. Um, grave robbers. Some people think grave robbers could have came in and took it. Grave robbers. So there was uh, groups of people back then that was very common. They would actually go in, take dead bodies. Um, and what they would do with dead bodies, they would then have 
spiritual, magical chance and do things with them in the hope of contacting and communicating with the dead. So there's actually been many uh, dead bodies found with um, uh, scrolls and different information like, like uh, kind of in their mouths. And you could see that like these kind of uh, cultish-like practices were done with dead bodies. So some people think, well, hey, maybe some grave robbers you know, got in there and got them. And that one, again, has its challenges because of the whole linen issue, uh, because of the rocks, and, um, and has a lot of problems. So, I wrote down some tough questions to answer for other possible ways of an empty tomb. Right? Here's some tough questions that got to be answered. If there's other ways other than a resurrection, I think we brought up um, some challenges within what people say. Um, why, would they, why would they die for it? We already talked about that, right? That's a tough question to answer, right? Why would they die? Um, they didn't expect him to rise at all, right? That's a tough question to answer there. Um, what about the guards? Didn't it say that there was a guard there that we just read about? And in Matthew 18, that's the only gospel where it says there was a guard, and it doesn't say how many, that a guard had been uh, instructed to watch to watch over that tomb. So the question is, is it a Jewish? Is it a Jewish guard? Like a temple police? Like, uh, but like a temple police? Or is it like a legit, you know, Roman guard? Because if it's a legit Roman guard, like they don't play around and it's serious business. Nobody's probably come within 100 yards of that thing. But if it's a temple police, you know, they, they could probably fall asleep on the job. They'd be like Paul Blart Mall Cop, you know, kind of thing. Like, they'd be like that, you know. Like, I'm sorry if you're a mall cop. That wasn't like a. I just thought of the movie. Sorry, but if it's a if it's a serious Roman official, nobody's getting in there because it's going to cost them their life. Like they do their job. Otherwise, they pay for it with their lives. And so that's another idea that's like thrown around. Like, is it clearly a Roman guard? Is it clearly a Jewish guard? And and. And, and a lot of people tend to think it was probably Roman, but it's not really definitive either way. And there's really issues with both, depending upon which kind of guard was there. So with all of this stuff being said, okay, I know I've lost some people along the way. It just happens. I'm okay with it. Hopefully you didn't just miss everything, but there's some valuable information there. Maybe even spurn some things. Maybe go check out some more later. There's a lot of good books on this stuff. I say all of that to just give you just a little bit of idea, which some of that you probably knew about. Maybe some you didn't. Um, I say all of that so we have a little bit of a better understanding in, in the context in which we live. We have something of value we can contribute to any conversation we might come into. Now, when we talk about those things, some people may only feel pressure that, oh my God, this is a lot of stuff I should know, and I didn't even get any of that. I completely understand and nor am I expecting anyone to get all of that and say, hey, listen, you got to just be, when it comes to the empty tomb, have all your ducks in a row, scientific facts lined up, and man, bring the heat. I, some people have a real gift and calling for that, and they're hungry for that type of thing, and they go after it, and, and God uses it well. For a lot of us, it, how many of we just have that ready in our brain, ready to go? Just, just not a lot, Right? 
So for me, it boils down to that empty tomb. There's, a, there's this thing of where Christ, we can say Christ lives, right? Empty tomb, Christ lives, blah, blah, come to church, do our Easter thing, and man, get after it. It's a much different thing to say Christ lives in me. Like there's Christ lives, and then there's Christ lives in me. So there's a Christ lives, like a mental ascension, he lives. Then there's a Christ lives in me. So to be totally honest with you, the best evidence for an empty tomb is a full life. The best evidence for an empty tomb is a full life. Full of what? Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, His Word, His truth, radical transformation that cannot be denied. You're not going to remember all that evidence stuff. But when we hear from some stories on Easter Sunday, and when we just live our life and we're just around other Christians, man, that's like the most powerful thing in the world. And when we talk about situations, lives, that just, man, the only way that life could have changed is like God actually came in and did something. Because they were hopeless. There's no place that they could go. Or they were trapped in their own funk, their own situation. Their life was dominated by other things. And now they're like this free person living in victory. That's the best evidence. And that's the phrase that just like, boom, all over me. Because as far as the rest of the world goes, you know, Easter Sunday is, you know, that's your day. You dress up, you do the cute kid thing, you know, you do the egg thing. And, and even that's a lot of problem in churches, and we'll talk more about that stuff too. But um, it's a day for family, getting together, all good. But the true story of Easter is that that tomb is empty. It's completely empty and not there. And you can definitely get into a conversation of why, how come, who did what. I'm telling you, the best evidence of an empty tomb is a full life. That's what connects with people. That's how, that's how come we come convinced. That, that's why I want to come to church on Easter Sunday and sing really loud and dance and look silly and just... Because it doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters because it's amazing what he does and what he's capable of doing. And the most confusing thing in the world is having churches full of people show up, do the yay, rah, rah, Easter Sunday thing, and everybody else around knows they're locked into stuff. They're in bondage. Strongholds are eating their lunch every day. They are not free. I don't know, you know what they did on Easter, but I know who they are, and... The rest of the world sees that immediately. That's all they see. And so a lot of times, that's like their most compelling evidence is what's really going on. That's the stuff that they're looking at. So let me just share with you super fast, okay? I think I'm doing okay so far. I'm doing pretty good today. Super fast. Let me just give you an idea of what we're talking about when we say a full life, okay? 
Colossians 3. We'll just check it out quick. So the best evidence for an empty tomb is a full life. So full, full, full. What are we talking about? The tomb is empty. We're brand new. Colossians chapter 3. This is some of the things that's true about us in this full life. So, just look at how it starts. Verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. All of a sudden, we have raised with Christ. The Christian has raised with Christ. All of a sudden, like we get to experience, have inherited. The Christian life is not really an invoice, it's an inheritance. It's an inheritance we have. It's not a bill that we got to pay, it's already been paid in full. We just actually have to choose and walk in that inheritance. Boom, right? We get to go in that. So you have been raised with Christ. That's reason to celebrate. That implies victory. That implies freedom. That implies if we're stuck in stuff, it's not going to last. It's only a countdown until it fully breaks off and falls off. And we've got to start looking at life like that. When things have a hold, it's a countdown until that stuff is out. It's a countdown. So that's just verse 1. Verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Brand new life. When Christ, who is your life, look at this, now Christ is our life. So all that he did, all that he accomplished, just gets inherited by us by faith. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And not something so we just take advantage of and just cavalier about. It's something that we let our hearts settle on. And we just say, thank you, Father. It's amazing that you do that. And so now, Lord, in thanksgiving, I'm going to do that to those around me, Lord. I don't want to just become a consumer. I want to be a source and a giver of it. Right? It's not like not a license to just do whatever we want now because we're good. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then... Paul goes into writing stuff we got to get rid of, stuff we got to put on. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Right? That's being full. It's being full. And he told us before, hey, listen, put to death this stuff. Get this stuff out of your life. Like, he makes it clear right in there. After that, he says, man, put on this stuff. So take that stuff off, put this stuff on, get dressed the right way. And at the end of that stuff, man, let the peace of Christ, like, be close with him, admonish one another, sing songs, give gratitude. And whatever we're doing, it's like unto God. Not necessarily for recognition, who might notice, who might not. Let's be honest. Um, the, the, 
Some people are used in amazing, huge, huge ways that just change the culture of earth and heaven forever. There might be some in the room. I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest with you. Maybe you would be, but I wouldn't be. I know who God is. And if you really are close to him, too, you'd know, too, and you wouldn't be that surprised either. But for the most of us, we're like day-to-day doing stuff, getting it done. Most people aren't going to see some of our biggest surrendering moments to God. But he will see it. He will know. He's keeping track and he's watching. And he will repay that more than a hundredfold. Absolutely. It's in his nature to do so. So let's see how we did on these uh, fill-in-the-blanks. Uh, where else can the story be found in the Bible? Uh, I gave you all that. What are other examples of resurrection in the Bible? I gave you that. Um, it takes faith to believe in the resurrection. right? It takes faith to believe in the resurrection. Can't get out of that. Take some faith. We weren't there. What are some tough questions, or re- for or that should say, what are some tough questions? Uh, that's just a bad sentence. Glad no English teachers are here. Although I work with some and they might listen and they'll get me. Um, what are some tough questions for reasons other than a re- resurrection? So we talked about some of that stuff. Um, you know, if they stole it, if dogs ate them, if grave robbers came in, and some of the problems with that. Um, best evidence. For an empty tomb. Oh, man, this is bad. Yeah, good job. So should, shouldn't be there. Best evidence for an empty tomb. Cross off should. Jeez, it's a full life. Sorry. Best evidence for an empty tomb. Cross off the should is an empty life. I'd like to say I'm just testing you to see if you're paying attention. Full life, sorry. It's time to close it up. All done. All done now. All done. We get the point. Oh, geez. All right. So we had one last song, and I think I put that one in there for Eric. Yeah, I screwed that up before, too. That was my fault, too. Um, So, Eric, we got that last song in there ready to go? So I just figured we'll spend that time. um, And the song just focuses on God's greatness, you know, who he is, how powerful he is. And I just wanted to sit in that for a little bit. And then, uh, and then Rick, if you wouldn't mind coming up after and just praying for us. Sound good?